Thank you very much indeed. So we have, I think, four more, four more speakers today, and the next one uh, I'd like to invite is Martin Kaufman, who was uh, one of the attendees of Ajahn Chandasiri's inaugural meditation class here, half of the population of her inaugural meditation class. Well, I can understand when um, people say that they're a bit apprehensive at first coming to this place. I certainly was. Um, Ezra and I, my wife, some of you know her, um, she died 18 months ago. But um, we've been coming here since 1984. And uh, the reason we came here was a little notice in the library. It said, free meditation classes. Now, free really attracted us. <laughs> we, had, we had some acquaintance with meditation and some acquaintance with the writings of Daizet Suzuki, um, who had what I have since learned is a, an idealized aspect of Zen but uh, we were very impressed with Zen and its influence on Japanese culture and Japanese culture was one of the things one aspect of Japanese culture had attracted us we practiced judo uh, which has now become a sport and people play judo but then it was an art in the early days and we did meditate uh, before practice and we maintained a respectful attitude towards our opponents it's quite necessary when you're practicing a lethal art so the we were working both of us in London and uh, we had um, I was working for the prison service I'm a pharmacist so pharmacist in the prison service, prison, drugs, all this sort of thing. It was difficult. People were trying to persuade one to do things which one was not supposed to do. And uh, I was imposing the accepted discipline of pharmacy to the medicines. Uh, and that didn't go down too well. So there was conflict. I was in the prison service for 14 years. And um, I didn't know it, but we only had another four years to go before we retired. We, as we decided that we would just retire at the age of 54, not wait till we were 60 or 65, because we might be waiting and uh, never reach 60 or 65. So... Esna was working for um, a um, stockbroking firm. It was, in fact, Lehman Brothers, and uh, you may have heard of Lehman Brothers. They, she was company secretary of 23 different companies. So that's stressful. And they all wanted to do things that they weren't supposed to do. And she was responsible for keeping them on the straight and narrow. And uh, five years later, you may have heard the scandal in, Le in uh, Lehman Brothers, but she wasn't there five years later. 
So we um, decided that we would come along Friday evenings. Friday's a good evening for us. And uh, it was a severe winter. As Alan mentioned, it was severe because we started coming in 1984. That's before the official opening of Amaravati. And 1984, we came one, one day late in the, in the year and there was snow on the ground but that didn't put us off we came to this place and we had this feeling of, of trepidation we got to Amravati, we found it alright and we went in through the gate but there was nobody to ask where do we go? so we had a look in one or two rooms which uh, had lights on and we saw shoes there, and I thought, no, no, look, I don't want to intrude. And we both thought the same thing, look, don't want to intrude. And we had this sort of uneasy feeling of trepidation. Look, they're monks and nuns, they don't want to have their lives disturbed. So we uh, turned around, went home. <laughs> but uh, we persisted. The next week we went there again. There was even more snow. But we thought, well, we're going to find this place. And we found a room which was lights blazing and there were two laymen sitting there in lotus posture, upright, very quietly. I thought, ah, this is the place. And the room was what is now the morning room, uh, which is behind the cellar. Uh, there weren't all those cupboards there. There was a clock on the wall which ticked. Very gently, that was a help to meditation. We didn't know about Anapanasati anyway. Uh, we learned later. And there was a blazing fire. Where the Ajahn's chair is now, Sumedho's chair for the uh, Dhamma chair, there was a fireplace. And it was logs, a blazing fire. So it may have been the one warm room in Amaravati. But... Uh, we didn't know that. We came in and uh, these two men offered us cushions and we sat down, lotus position. We were used to doing that anyway. And uh, we waited. And we waited a little while. Eventually, a monk came in. Uh, well, you could tell he was a monk because of the shaved head and the orange robe. And um, it was, uh, in fact, it was Vajiro. And uh, the sort of thing that he said to us was common sense. It, was, uh, it wasn't views and opinions. It was about generally developing the mind, refraining from evil, doing good, being kind to people, things like dana and metta. I thought, wait a minute. I've heard this before, because um, the person who was telling me about it was a rabbi. He wasn't using the terms dana metta. He was talking about chesed and tzedakah, but uh, that's what it was about. And we had uh, met in the Jewish Youth Club, um, discussing philosophy and politics and all sorts of deep things that. Uh, 15-year-olds, actually we were 14, 14-year-olds 14 know all about. 
And uh, I thought, she's pretty bright and she's very good looking. And she was thinking something which was much the same about me. And we were together for 65 years from then on. So, <laughs> but that's another story. But we went together to this meditation class. And uh, Vajira revealed that he, in civilian life, in lay life, shall I say, not civilian life, lay life, was uh, an accountant. And that scored brownie points with us. We thought, oh, well, no wonder he's so sensible. You've got to be sensible <laughs> if you're an accountant. Either you're sensible or you're rich and crooked. He's obviously not rich and crooked, so he must be okay. And um, we enjoyed the class, and we meditated. We had a good good time. We made friends with these other two people, and we're still friends. And in following weeks, there were another couple came, another two people, then another. And uh, the numbers went up to about... A dozen, eventually. Uh, That was the sort of maximum. So, uh, well, the first thing that Vajiro told us about were the obstructions to meditation. Uh, Let's see. Desire, aversion, and delusion. Well, delusion's a bit difficult because you don't know that you're deluded. But uh, (laughs) desire and aversion... You can still see these, think, think this, but thought, oh well, doesn't really apply to us. Doesn't happen very often. And but um, after about four weeks, I think it was, Vajiro didn't turn up. We waited another few minutes and about another ten minutes, and another monk came in. And I, I thought to myself, yeah, that's not our monk. He's too tall. He's got a rather serious expression. He's thin and he's wearing a silly hat. I don't think I'm going to like him. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is aversion. There's no justification for it. It's just aversion. It's just a thought. I didn't say anything, so let it go. And it went. This man was Suchito, in fact, and we learned a great deal. We learned a great deal from Suchito as well, and from subsequent monks and nuns. So um, things aren't always what they appear to be. <laughs> so um, one of the things which impressed us most of all was that, again, before the official opening. There was an interfaith meeting, and somebody mentioned that, uh, about interfaith meetings, because there are quite a lot of people who come from the the Christian tradition. There are quite a lot of people who come from the Jewish tradition, seeing that the population of Jews is very small in this country. It's only about a quarter of a million. Um, um, We call ourselves Yudists. I've heard heard other expressions... (laughs) But uh, Yodists and Jewish Buddhists, and uh, it's surprising where they turn up. There are lots of them. 
But it's not a matter of views and opinions. And that's what attracted us very much to Buddhism, is that it is a rational system, not a belief and opinion. You, there are people, there are a whole spectrum of beliefs and opinions that people have who come here. And they all come from different directions. People come from traditionalist directions. Uh, some of them are very devotional. Some of them are just concentrating on the dana only. And some of them are trying to acquire merits. And I, I try not to be disparaging about that. But uh, I, because I realize that's an aversion. Uh, that's fine. Um, people are coming from different directions. But they all end up on the same path. And we're all going in the same direction. There is a, a wonderful feeling of camaraderie here. You can trust people. Which is rare outside here. Uh, in work, in business, in, in the prison service certainly. When I first joined the prison service, um, I met the governor outside and I introduced myself. We were waiting to be let in, and he, he said, uh, "He said, well, he said you're you're going to find that uh, a lot of the people in this establishment are thieves and liars, and some of the prisoners are quite bad too." <laughs> the other thing he said to me was. Uh, we had to wait one day for a long time. He said, uh, oh, Mr. Kaufman, he said, uh, he said, sometimes I think it would be a good idea if we would let all the law-abiding law people inside the prison, lock them up, and lock all the others out. <laughs> so, uh, but that didn't, uh, didn't come about. <coughs> he had a sense of humor, that governor. I feel a bit like that with uh, Amravati because I see terrible things going on elsewhere and terrible conduct and I try very, very hard not to be judgmental. It's very difficult though. Anyway, this interfaith meeting, uh, there were people from, mainly from the Christian tradition and there were a few people from Yudhists, actually, from the Jewish tradition. There weren't any Orthodox Jews, there weren't any Orthodox Muslims, which is a pity. But um, it was early in 1985, and it was that interfaith meeting that I learned that people of all faiths and what they have in common are concepts of empathy and generosity. And those things are far more significant than beliefs and opinions. I made an effort to summarize that day in a poem which I wrote, uh, 88 words only. Uh, I'd like to read that to you. It's called Group Meditation because we had a group meditation together. Sitting together, each within his own monastic cell of flesh and bones, Try not to see the pictures on the walls. They are self-portraits, every one. Breathing together, each within his own essential rhythm of heart and mind, 
trying to fit the pattern of the void. No more self-seeking, all at one. Silent together, letting go of words and self. Which is Christian? Which is Jew? Which is I? And which is you? No more speeches, no more thought, no more seeker, nothing sought. Silent one. That's all I'll say. Thank you very much. So I'd like to invite uh, Rookie Shilam next of all. And uh, she has been a, a staunch supporter of the Sangha. Uh, long before Chidhurst even began, in the days of um, when the Sangha were in, first in London, and has been ever-present ever since. So please, Rookie, do uh, take the seat and offer your reflections on the um, early days. Well, what comes foremost to my uh, thoughts is Vendabhananda uh, Maitreya and his two very devoted uh, disciples, Barbara and Peter, uh, what I remember is that uh, Barbara and Peter found a place and uh, when Ananda Maitreya pronounced that it was had great spiritual potential. <laughs> um, well, there's so much I can say, but I'll make it as brief as possible. The thing that attracted me and still does is the meditation here which we were yearning at that time for some sort of guidance. Um, I live in London, very close to the London Buddhist Vihara. I'm going to put in a bit for, <laughs> bit for it here, now that I got the chance. It's, I think it's the Theravada uh, Vihara, established here in London in 1926, <laughs> by uh, well-known anyway to the Sri Lankans as Anagarika Dhammapala. Um, so meditation, we used to have monks, but we felt it, it wasn't enough. Um, there was one monk who would say, now sit down, sit directly, close your eyes, don't let, uh, think of your breathing, don't let any thoughts come into your mind. So, <laughs> try that. <laughs> and <laughs> we were all over the place. It was definitely a real monkey. And then one day, <laughs> one day, when is it Revatadama, Burmese monk Revatadama, he came and he gave guidance and he said, don't worry if your mind runs all over the place. Well, before that, I have to mention that everybody sat so quietly and I thought maybe I'm not the... I'm not the one who, all the others uh, are good, good at meditation. I'm the one who cannot do it. Then when Baldrevata Dhamma came and he said, don't worry if your mind is all over the place. You know what the Buddha called it? The monkey mind. Not an ordinary monkey, but a crazy monkey. <laughs> so I knew that I was not alone. <laughs> and uh, so Amravati has uh, started and Meditation was the, was the great attraction. And before Amravati, we had about four retreats at Rogate, a village near Chithurst. Yes? Yes. yes. 
and uh, with Ajahn Sumedho. And what's so vivid in my memory is that my mother was there at the time. She was 81 then. And uh, we had this very, very, uh, what would I call it, uh, very peaceful meditative experience with her. Uh, and we are very grateful to Ajahn, uh, Ajahn uh, Sumedho for, for, the, for that experience. So, and after that, of course, we, we didn't let go of Amaravati. We became regular visitors. Uh, and I, I remember Ajahn uh, Sumedho having, I got that bit here about, uh, about Amaravati, why, why it was, what he was going to make of. Uh, uh, he says, uh, I see how it should, should operate. Amaravati is based on the ideas of dana, generosity, sila, moral responsibility, and commitment. It is a residence for monks and nuns who can create the opportunity for lay people to listen to the Dhamma, to give offerings, to practice meditation, and make skillful use of facilities. So that's why we are here. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's so much I can say, but I think that's enough. <laughs> As you wish, Rookie. Sorry? As you wish. <laughs> uh, I just think of all the monks and nuns who were here. Uh, I like to remember Sister Rochana, who mm-hmm. died uh, while on uh, retreat, not retreat, pilgrimage uh, in India. Uh, who else? Uh, Rochana, there's also Sister Jyotaka was mentioned. Uh, Sister Kalyana, I remember. One thing I can tell about Kalyana is, uh, as a lay person, she wanted to visit Sri Lanka. And she, so I arranged for her to stay at my brother's. And, uh, and I asked her, um, do you eat meat? Yeah, because I thought before they go there, they, of course not, she said. Do you? So I said, <laughs> Yes, so I said, yes, I do. Do the people in Sri Lanka eat meat? <laughs> so I had to admit that they did. <laughs> so these are little, little things that I remember, because I think you have heard most of the interesting things. Uh, yes, uh, Ajahn uh, Sumedho mentioned about me making use of this skillful use of the facilities. And that's meditation for me, and that's why I'm here. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rookie. Uh, so along with that uh, group, first group of nuns coming through the gate, uh, behind Sister Nanda, uh, Ajahn uh, Sundra, uh, followed along with the, the rest of the group, and she's been a member of the community uh, here at Amravati in various different places for all, all these years. So I'd like to invite her to offer her reflections and recollections now. I've been so moved by what everybody has said and brought tears to my eyes and also just a memory of what uh, we've been through. You know, we sort of, you know, we practice letting go, you know, as a way of life, so you don't kind of hang on to memory too much. And I had to kind of scratch my brain, you know, about really what is worth saying. Um, Yeah, because a lot of... A lot of our our experience, my experience, was I was so much into the teaching, into the practice. The external world wasn't as important. You know, as long as there was Lumpo, 
me practicing, I couldn't care what, what happened after that. I just went, you know, I was quite a hard worker because I was very energetic anyway. And uh, if I didn't work, I probably would have been very miserable, you know, very restless and agitated. So when we had working period, I would be, you know, I would be very happy to help out. And also idealistic. So, you know, if when people didn't help out, I was, I was really critical as well. But, um, so um, that was a, a bit of a, you could say, uh, what I liked was like to put your weight into things, to help out, to give them, you know, as much as you can without thinking about your, yourself. Um, you know, when I'm here, I think, oh, everything has been said, really. But, I, I, you know, maybe a couple of things, you know. One is the, um, uh, some of you didn't hear the second day after that famous uh, Triple arrest. I think got arrested. Well, two arrests and one sort of checkup. Checkup from the local policeman at the village where I've been arrested already once. Uh, we. I just say the story because it's quite funny. Uh, we were kind of with our rucksack, and uh, that was the first time I was camping in my life for me. So it was really double exciting. It was like, wow, you know, you're really kind of sport girl. Because I used to be a dancer. You know, we were kind of refine things. You know. For me, the idea of camping was not the thing. Sports was just like gross, you know. And so <laughs> it just didn't fit at all. But the idea of everything, the experience of camping was great. So one day after that, that, that kind of whole adventure, police station, road back, and then we stayed at the night. We were on our way to the house of John Coleman, who was a, quite a well-known meditation teacher and was a retired CIA um, agent. So we thought, we hope the policemen won't sort of ask us where we are going. <laughs> but anyway, the next day, we go off with great spirit, and we um, were three, and at the end of the day, as usually, we're trying to find a place where we could pitch our tent. And so um, somebody said, oh, just go to the brother up the monastery there. They will, they will help you. So off we go. And as we arrive next to this grand building, uh, we see one monk kind of zooming out of the door with a huge, massive bouquet of flowers. We couldn't actually, he was on his way somewhere. And he said, come in, come in, you know. And so we came in, and that was uh, the gate for the uh, guest house. And so he asked us to sit there somewhere, and then we, we waited. And later on, um, he came back and said, um, Okay, we prepared your seat at the refectory. Please, you're welcome to come and join us for the for supper. And we said, I'm so we're so sorry. We're actually Buddhist nun, and we don't eat in the afternoon. And he nearly fell backward. He was absolutely convinced we were young monks, <laughs> men, in other words, <laughs> because they never had any women staying at the monastery ever. So. Um, you know, and then the, the next thing we knew is that he went away. You know, he decided to sit there, and then came back. The abbot came arrived. The abbot of that, you know, magnificent monastery, all very cheerful and old. You know, and uh, he uh, he was desperate to help us. You know, you could see, and he was saying, "Well, why don't you sit, camp your." You pitch your tent right outside the grass at the entrance there. And we kept saying, don't worry, Father, you know, we will find a place for sure. It's not dark yet and so on. And at some point he had this kind of light in his eyes. He said, I know where you're going to go. He really been praying. I think he had stayed quite a long time without doing anything. And I'm sure he was praying, God, to God, what, what do we do with this 
nuns, you know. And anyway, the light shone, and uh, he said, I know, you're going to camp in the monk's garden. So there we were. It was actually the palace of a Russian princess before they came to this place. Not very far from here, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's a famous place. So we spent the night there. So that was another adventure on the way to Amaravati. But Amaravati for me, um, you know, I, I had to get used to chitters. So, you know, chitters was a real damp as well, even though it had great potential. But honestly, from, you know, living in a fairly refined environment, you know, with kind of Baroque music in the background, the supper, you know, and uh, good wine and that kind of thing, you know, a few years before when I was married. And, you know, to arrive in a place where everybody looked, they just come out of the wood, you know. They look like, 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 I don't know, you know. I didn't even live in the countryside at the time at all. And, you know, American, Canadian... Um, you know, all people that had not much to do with. You know, I don't remember, I was still in Thailand, and it was so weird, because I didn't plan to be a nun, actually, at Tittos, you know, and I saw this house, and then the cottage. Oh, that was even worse, you know. For me, it was really not good, you know. It's like cold, miserable, and far away, and you had to go down at night. We had an all-night sitting every every week at, until 4 o'clock in the morning at Four o'clock, you will go down this dark lane. Is yeah. Anyway, so I got used to Chitters and this kind of development, looking finely beautiful. Then we arrive here. I had already had my Dharma, you could say, my Dharma teaching about mm, finding a horrible place and turning it into a beautiful one. So I didn't worry too much. You know, it was just con- you know, unconscious. I mean, it's like, okay, uh, it's been worked out. That aspect of my life been worked out. Arriving in a place that looks terrible and eventually has potential, you know. So um, one of the things that um, you know, I mean, everybody talked about the amount of work. I was very happy with the work myself, although I got exhausted like everybody else. But uh, I was a hyperactive, you know, very active, energetic person physically. So um, I never really, um, you know, even the work wasn't something that I fancied, you know, putting putty and painting and scraping and so on as a personal thing. But once you got into it in the present moment, I discovered you can do almost anything with a lot of happiness, you know, so not a big deal in the end, you know. And the cold, when I hear everybody talking about the cold, I think I must have been so hot, heated in my mind, you know, with so many kilesa flaring through, I was just hot all the time, like, you know, really energetic. And I don't remember the cold as much, you know. I don't remember 10 blankets, you know. It was just like one duvet and two, that's enough, you know. I don't even remember. I mean, I had probably a hot water bottle, you know, but I, didn't re- I wasn't obsessed with the hot water bottle, I remember. Still, it was cold. So cold that at some point I got in touch with my sister who was doing yoga and she suggested that if it was so cold in the morning, maybe I could take a cold shower and that would... mm, mm. We were idealistic in those days. We just did everything we could to make it work, in other words. Whatever it was, you know, you have to be alive the next day and carry on. You know, it's like you couldn't go back, could not go forward. You were stuck in the present moment, more or less. And there was no, I'm seeing most of us talked about, uh, most of the people before talk about this face factor, you know. I think everybody was like, there's no way back and no way forward. Like, that's it. You know, it's an experience. Give the whole, all you have now, you know. 
And certainly for me that was the case, you know. So, um, yeah, so the, 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 you know, we also have something that I loved was a pindapat in the morning. You know, I used to go pindapat a lot, the kind of pindapat we had in those days. You walk for one hour, two hours, you know, in the morning after breakfast and, uh, come back, uh, driven back by some of our friends. In fact, one of them is at the back there with yet three little daughters, and now they're all grown up in Berkhamstead, when people at different part, but the gentleman at the back there was in, lives in Berkhamstead. So that, I loved the life myself. I loved the life. I just thought, you know, walking in the morning, uh, the Dharma was just exquisite. You know, we just had so much. I just adored Lumpur Sumedho anyway. I just loved his teaching. It inspired me so much, you know. I didn't feel I needed a particular teacher, you know, but when Lumpur was there, it just made me laugh and made everybody laugh so much, you know. And it was completely outrageous sometimes. And I just loved this outrageous side of him, you know, eccentric. And um, so, you know, in a way, there was a lot of difficulty. The hardest part for me is was to become... A institutional, I mean, not institutional, but a formed nuns community. Because before, we were rather informed at Chittas, you know, for many, for four years, we were our own person. You know, we didn't have like an Anagarika community run by an Anagarika nun and so on, you know. We just did, each one of us put ourselves into the Dharma practice, discipline, and so on. And actually, actually at Chittas, at Jensen Medu, I heard, he, you know, I heard him, somebody told me that he said in Thailand that the nuns were much more keen on Vinaya than some of the monks, you know. I don't know if that was true, but it, we were very keen on Vinaya, on our precepts, on our, you know. So this is something that just carried on here. Um, so the hardest part for me was to become a nuns community. And unfortunately, we had 84, we came here, 83, 87, sorry, three years later, 87, Sister Rojana passes away. That was a disaster for me, not just because she was she passed away, but also be, began to be the first one in line. But fortunately at the time, I had no idea what it would mean fully, you know. But like anybody who's been in a position of quote-unquote, you know, authority, even without any authority, the perception of that seems to empower every demon's mind, every demon, uh, <laughs> demons in people's mind, you know, it's like, she's to blame for everything, you know. I don't think people think consciously like that, but it's, uh, so for me it was really hard. That was, that was a difficult part, to become like somebody who's supposed to know what they are doing and supposed to tell other people what they are doing and supposed to be an example as well. It's like, what? And that was, uh, that was, the hardest part. The cold was nothing compared to that, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. And I got so kind of heated up about the whole thing that uh, Paul saved me from illnesses and disease, you know, at the time. <laughs> but it was quite hard to build up a community with you at the top, you know, supposedly as an example. And it's not conscious in people, you know, I don't think everybody thinks, oh, she must be doing, she must be better than others. But it's kind of an expectation in the back of our mind. If people are like me, I just function the same way. Uh, so that was the hardest. And also to, um, f to feel that suddenly we are part of an institution. That, you know, Chetters was very free-spirited. We had tea on the lawn. You know, we didn't have time. I mean, they had, we did have time, but it seemed to be much more loose in terms of space and timing and so on. You know, even though we had work time, meal time, and so on, there was something 
I don't know, much more organic in a way. Yeah. So uh, becoming a, a monastery, an institution, a non-community, that was a lot to take on for me, you know, to sort of, in my, you know, vision of things. Um, I didn't want to be part of a group that's, you know, that's organized too much, you know. But I, you know, eventually I did appreciate, I do appreciate now, you know, very much the, the fact that this community I've been lived and formed and continues, you know, for all people who wants to continue, or women who wants to continue the practice. Um, we had every possible character. You won't believe what we have. One of them was a kind of, we call him butterfly man, you know, he, a, a young young man who used to kind of walk around the whole site on his toes with the arms like a butterfly. <laughs> that's what I remember. He was very innocent and very harmless, you know, but that's what his way, that was his way of kind of walking around the, the Amarawati. So that was kind of fun. I loved eccentric myself. Actually, somebody I think likes eccentric as well. I know, I've kind of, you know, I think I sense he'd quite like unusual people. And so we did attract quite a few of those, you know. Um, I don't know if that was an influence of, you know, lobo psyche or what, but one of the things I remember, Ajahn Sumedho did a retreat, and he came back from the city of 10,000 Buddhas in California, where they are, they, you know, we thought they were highly ascetic. Of course, since then that I know the community that they think we are super ascetic compared to them, which is interesting because we don't handle money, we don't drive, etc., etc. And Sulumbo was very inspired and started to, 1980, um, what was it, 1983, 84, 5, 6, 7, 97, 87, he decided to um, really emulate, sort of not emulate, but inspire us, I suppose, you know, in the practice and said, okay, We'll do a retreat, we start at three, you know, three, three, we start at four, so we get up at three, and then we go on until 11 at night. And Ajahn Amaro was doing a sitters practice at the time, and I did not know he slept in the shrine room, <laughs> you know, next to a, a nice storage heater, too. that's right. <laughs> you know, and I was extremely, cons I mean, you know, um, performing, I was, uh, you know, I was like, I, performance, I like the idea of performance, you know, like pushing, pushing myself. And I couldn't understand why John Amaro was always the last one, you know, because I was there sitting until 11 o'clock at night, you know, and like, you know, what you might know, no, no, okay, still. And I thought, there's only two, three people staying, you know, why is it, you know, oh, I didn't realize I was just, he was just waiting for me to go <laughs> to have a break. But anyway, so we did that, you know, and I still remember Lumpur, the first talk we had in 87, he gave this inspiring talk in the evening as an opening talk for the, for the retreat, and then I, I'm ready. I just love the idea of being challenged like that, you know. Um, I was physically, you know, I could still do it, just about. And uh, I go back to the kitchen in the monk's scullery, you know, and it was like 11 o'clock already, and I say, right, getting up at 3, okay, well, get used to it. And then I arrive in the scullery, and there's a little, you know, a door opened, a completely mad woman who had already had visited Amarawati turns up, you know, there she is, she's looking for a place to, to spend the night. So I've already said, what, five hours, five hours, just about, you know, three, four, that would have been four hours, you know, wow, okay, well, we make it, I'm sure I'll make through that, you know. 
there she is, and we have to look after her to find her bed in Lotus House, which in those days was so terrible that nobody lived there, and it was haunted. We've been told it was haunted by a sort of departed nun from centuries ago, apparently. Some of the nuns felt it had been haunted. It was. Anyway, we put these women there, you know, and uh, two, well, there was another nun, I think, who helped me, maybe a lay woman. There I was, you know, starting my retreat, this ascetic retreat, and then I had to look after these mad women um, and still get up at three, because I would never allow myself to be late or to be not as, as you know, the best, if not the best, at least, you know, with the best, <laughs> with the best people. So that was one of those um, challenges that Lompo put us through sometimes, you know, and... Uh, God, time is running. So how many minutes do I have? Uh, Gone over, huh? You're over. Okay. <laughs> Just well, since you ask. Yeah. Well, that's good. So I can stop there then, okay? Thank you very much, Ajahn. Yes, those were the days. I had a very deep relationship with the night storage heater. Since one of our, our ascetic practices is to... Uh, we can choose to not lie down to sleep at night, so I did that for a few years. And uh, it was <clears throat> during those, um, those uh, cold winter nights, this night storage heater became very, very dear to me. So, so she's absolutely right. I used to stay in the shrine room, <clears throat> both meditating and kind of waiting. <laughs> but last, uh, our last speaker today, Martin Evans, also another local resident like uh, Martin Kaufman, uh, started coming along to the classes here in the very earliest days and uh, still very much involved uh, as a regular leader of the um, ALBA, Amravati Lay Buddhist Association events, and also on the um, various committees looking after finances and the long-term plan uh, uh, development committee. So, Martin, please. So, this is an interesting experience. I know I've been sitting up here before. Um, Gosh, isn't it nice? <laughs> well, I try not to enjoy it too much, otherwise you'll be here a long time. But I've brought a sheaf of notes, you'll be pleased to know, because um, I thought, well, I actually kept a diary, that's my excuse. Otherwise, I wouldn't have dared to bring uh, anything pre-prepared. But it wasn't, it's not really pre-prepared. It's, a, it's a, an account of my diary at the time. I was quite surprised to discover I kept a diary back then. I don't really keep a diary now, but when Ajahn Amro asked me to talk, I, I looked, thought, oh, did I have a diary? And I dug about and found uh, some first-hand accounts. So when people talk about uh, the cold, I can tell them exactly what the temperature was. <laughs> <laughs> so just to give a bit of context, I was living in London in 19... Uh, 79 and uh, just with a new family and we were looking for somewhere uh, outside London in the, on the edge of the country that um, wasn't too far away from Buddhism, Buddhist activities and it seemed like most of the Buddhist activities at that time were in London so I turned down a job in Yorkshire, I thought that no, it's, there's nothing up there I can't go there, I have to be nearby Buddhist activities so we chose Hemel Hempstead. And um, then in... Uh, uh, what we didn't know, of course, was that it was going to be the centre of the Buddhist world. <laughs> Buddhism would come to me. So, uh, 
I um, had heard about um, Amaravati at the Buddhist Society that Arjun Samedha was looking for somewhere north of London to set up the deathless. This is interesting. I didn't realise it was called Amaravati before it before it actually we'd actually acquired the property. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the way it says so in my diaries. It's true. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I heard that um, they were looking at St Margaret's School, only three miles from my house. I thought that maybe if they knew there was lay support nearby, it might make a difference. So I made an invitation of refreshments next time they visit the school. On the 13th of January 1984, I got a call from Barbara Jackson to say, Ajahn Samedo and some monks, including a delegation from California as M monks, would be visiting Amaravati on Sunday. Would I like to offer tea at my house? She gave me tips about allowables and told me a lot about the rules such as monks can't reach beyond a bent arm's length and little girls have to be restrained from touching the monks because I had a son of five and a daughter of three and a half. So on Sunday at 4.15pm a car drew up. Ajahn Sumedha got out and came to the door. He looked me up and down. I was shaking like a leaf. And having satisfied himself that they'd come to the right place, he beckoned to another seven monastics to follow him in. <laughs> Alison, my wife, provided a tray of, of uh, drinks. Thomas, my son, who was five, wandered around in circles with the chocolate, feeling rather pleased that nobody was eating any and had to be, <laughs> and had to be enticed to get within a bent arm's length. Susie, three and a half, far from touching the monks, hid behind her blanket and watched. <laughs> Soon everyone relaxed. It was just like having some good friends round. We talked about TV, which we didn't have. This impressed the Zen monks, who thought it should be a Buddhist precept. When I said we didn't have a car either, one of them nearly fell off his seat. We talked about Ajahn, I talked with Ajahn Sumedho about his plans for Amravati. They said three miles was very convenient for Pindapat. And, and we talked about publicising um, Amravati and uh, possibly that's where the advert in the library came from. After they left, Thomas said, I like the one who sat there. And that was Ajahn Sumedho. And I wrote in my diary, this was the, my very best day. So I read this account to my wife. And at, the, at that point, I looked at her and she said, yes, and you had got married and had two children. <laughs> <coughs> Oops. <laughs> but Let we, me rephrase that, dear. Yeah. <laughs> but I was very honest, obviously. Because I wasn't expecting her to read my diary. <laughs> But it meant that much. It was amazing. It's looking back at, at that and thinking, gosh, wow. You know, it, it, it already, we, even though we hadn't bought the place yet, um, I obviously had that sense of this is something marvellous and incredible that was happening in my life. On the 13th of October, 1984, the first weekend retreat I've written here, quite a few details, but... What one thing that stands out, breakfast only just edible. 
when Ajahn Damananda was saying about breakfast, I, I felt, I just hope he wasn't making that one that I was referring to at that time. Uh, and, the, and I enjoyed the paint scraping. And, I, you know, I, I can still find the cracks in the, in the glass in the retreat center. There are still cracks there that I created with the blowtorch. <laughs> and I, I'm very proud of those cracks. And they're still there. You know. and, and, and all the good friends. And we've heard mention of a lot of them. But I mentioned here Sister Rochana, Tanisara and Jyotika, Venerable Chandapala and Ajahn Samedo who I all felt, you know, I felt everyone was a good friend. It was such a lovely environment. On the 5th of January, 1985, I've got an entry. All night sit. A brilliant, white, frosty, moonlight night. I walked outside until midnight to keep awake, then sat until inspiration turned to boredom. I had had enough and was about to go to bed when the gong went. It was 3 a.m. I went to my room at 3.30. I must have slept, but I woke twice before I finally decided to look at the time. It was 5.30. My feet were numb with cold. I was suddenly struck with the fear that my feet would be numb all morning if I didn't warm them up, so I turned on the radiator and lay on the floor with my feet on it. After an hour, the circulation had just about returned. All the time I was hearing rumbling noises. Mice. They seemed to be in the roof. Then I realized it was snow. It was so deep it was rolling down the roof. The water in the toilet was frozen. And the pipes were frozen. And they didn't thaw out for two to three weeks, as I recall. And and that winter, after it thawed, it froze again. So all of the burst pipes that had been mended froze again, and then they had to be mended. I think I wasn't fortunately responsible for burst pipes. I wasn't, I wasn't in charge of the maintenance committee at the time, thank goodness. Um, but I know that there were hundreds of burst pipes that, that winter. After gruel, I remember Ajahn Suchito giving out the working meditation, reading from a list. The interesting thing was, Ajahn Samedo had been talking about uh, the snow and saying, well, we won't be doing any work outside today. But Ajahn Suchito already had his list and he just read it out, (laughs) which included cutting the hedge. Ajahn Samedo pointed out that it had six inches of snow on it. So... And everyone thought it was very funny. Felt a little bit sorry for Ajahn Sajita. (laughs) And then, uh, for me, I didn't have to do uh, any work, fortunately. I was allowed out. I had a glorious walk home across the fields. Uh, Only the tracks of animals in the deep snow and a day sledging with the children. So, those are my excerpts of the... of the... um, early days at the, mon- at the monastery as it was established. Well, I felt incredibly grateful it was that it was here and then, of course, being here, the opportunity to, to use it and coming for many uh, talks, 
and over time retreats and then the opportunity to uh, to develop lay activities and practices as Ajahn Amaro mentioned and the Amaravati Lay Buddhist Association uh, and then uh, the opportunity to teach myself but also to encourage others which is I think for, for lay people is a wonderful not only the gift of Dhamma is a wonderful gift but also the opportunity to teach is a wonderful gift and it's an incredibly focusing uh, thing for somebody um, uh, to to teach because they have to go and work it, look it all up you know, perhaps spend a week reflecting on that subject that they're going to give some reflections on it really focuses the mind and enhances their practice over that period. So um, nowadays, I invite people, lay people, to come to the Bodhinyana group and, and offer reflections that we can use for a discussion uh, afterwards. So I find that offering that opportunity to people is very um, enhancing to their practice. So the... Uh, Many things, as I've kept in touch and very active in over time with the monastery, I also uh, offer my accounting services because I'm an accountant and I end up... Uh, fortunately, I can say I live in the same house as I did 30 years ago, so I didn't, um, out of ill-gotten gains, move into a mansion down the road. But my Ill, I never had any ill-gotten gains at the... Uh, able to offer my serf- services support to the monastery. At the moment, we are uh, obviously you're aware of the Amravati Development Plan, and I'm very closely involved uh, with the um, financial aspects of that, and very well aware of the um, parameters around which the monastery can develop its. Uh, long-term plan. So the, the nursing kuti is a very exciting project. We're at the... Uh, having got planning permission, we're now at the point of uh, developing the plans uh, and the, to, to the point where they can we can go out to tender. But uh, we're not able yet until we have enough funds to, to do that because once we go to tender, we're committed... To progress with the with the um, development, uh, at least we feel it would be dishonourable to to expect people to provide uh, the, the amount of work that's involved in tendering for the construction of a building that you can't afford to actually uh, construct. <laughs> so uh, we're at the point of waiting until we have enough funds in order to go out to tender, which we hope to do uh, within the next uh, couple of months, and then. If we're uh, if that uh, we're able then to progress uh, that to to construction, which we would like to start in, in in October if it were possible, but we we don't really know how things will fall, how the dominoes. Or is it dominoes? Then that's maybe not the right uh, domino effect. That sounds like the. Is that right? Yeah, you know, it just came to mind the dominoes that you're kind of putting a stack, and then you're not the first one up, and they, all of them fall over. We don't want that to happen. No. <laughs> it's the something is everything comes into place. Oh, it's like a jigsaw, isn't it? And you fit all the little jigsaw pieces into place, and then you come up with a nursing cootie. It's as simple as that, really. So we're we're very much um, well as I'm involved in the finance. It's uh, 
it's something I keep quite a close attention to. And that's a, a great joy for me, actually, to be able to, to offer that uh, and, and to be amongst people who, like myself, offer so much to the, to the monastery as lay people to make it work, but also the monastics who, most of all, offer their lives to this practice, to the, the, their own practice and the development of uh, enlightenment and this is our um, even as, as lay people too we have a responsibility not only uh, to support practice of monastics but to develop our own practice because if we don't have uh, our own a strong practice of our own uh, then we're not able to to really offer anything as skillfully as we might so it's a it's a wonderful thing for me over all this time to uh, have been able to be here wow and uh, it's interesting to to look back all that time ago i somehow knew uh, yeah buddhism had come to me and it was the the most important thing in my life <laughs> thank, thank you. you very much hmm? <laughs> please yes uh, How could I refuse? <laughs> yes, I'm here to uh, remind everybody that uh, this gathering would not, would not be complete without mentioning Thailand and the Thai people whose son, uh, Ajahn Chah, uh, had the vision that this country was ripe for the Dhamma and sent his son, Ajahn Sumedho, and we are all here because of that. So thank you, Thai people, if you are here. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. And we ask, on behalf of everybody, ask forgiveness from the Sangha. For yes. <laughs> any shortcomings on our part. Right. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's uh, contributed t- uh, today. It was very delightful to um, see our old friends. I, I was as uh, Alan Vipassi was was talking. I suddenly remembered, wasn't that and Jintamani and Jintamani and Vipassi and Atapema and me? We sat down in the Sangha room at the end of the retreat center on a Christmas day, and we designed this building, <laughs> or something like it. <laughs> and so many wonderful uh, memories being evoked from the past. And uh, I hope that uh, just as for myself, that for many of you. This has uh, been an inspiring and uh, say, uh, encouraging uh, occasion. So we've been together a long time now, but I'd like to close the afternoon with uh, the chanting the sharing of blessings. We've printed up these sheets so there are enough copies for everyone. And uh, on one side we have the sharing of blessings, and on the other side we have the reflections on the, uh, the Nibbana, uh, on the unconditioned. And so that uh, I'll sit myself down here in the central seat and then we can offer up the, uh, the blessings of the day and uh, of our lives to be a benefit to all, particularly uh, those uh, members of the Sangha who passed on, like uh, Sister Rochna and other dear friends who've, whose uh, blood, sweat and tears have gone to make this place and uh, who are no longer here, and particularly uh, for Lumpur Sumato, who, as it was said a few times, without, this, uh, without him none of this would uh, be here at all.